Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 9th, 2015. Even though it's a short week, we will be doing our ramblings through Genesis. This will be more rambly than than other installments of this series. tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to, you know, open up our Bibles and take a look at what God's Word says in context using sound biblical exegesis, proper hermeneutics, a Christ-centered understanding of Scripture. Yeah, that's right. The Scripture's not about you. They're about Jesus. Proper distinction of law and gospel in order to uh, test to see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex test to see if it's actually what God's Word says and what it means, or if they're creating doctrines, you know, the imaginations of their own mind, teaching false doctrine and teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach, that kind of stuff. Now, what we've been doing is we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, and uh, in our series called the uh, Roseboro's Ramblings Through Genesis, we are up to uh, Genesis chapter 21, and uh, this particular episode is, ex- well, it's extremely rambly, is the best way I could put it. Is There's lots of rambling going on in this one, and I think this uh, this installment of the series is aptly named, uh, Roseboro's Ramblings Through Genesis. So without any further ado, here's the next installment, Genesis chapter 21. Let us pray. Lord, keep us steadfast in your word and curb those who by deceit or sword would wrest the kingdom from your son and bring to naught all that he has done. In Jesus' name, amen. We're doing the hermeneutical spiral a little bit today. That means we're going to cover some of the same ground we covered last week. And then we're going to get into one of the more important stories in the Old Testament typologically. I know I've taught on this here before, but we're not going to skip it. You know, it's not like we're going to say, oh, I've been there, done that. No, it's an important story to go through and to dig into. So where we left off last week, we'll start off Genesis chapter 21, verse 8. You know, we'll kind of get the background here and move forward. So the child, this is Isaac or Itzhak, grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. 
But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And that's laughing with scorn, laughing with contempt. And so she said to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So that's kind of the the rub, is that Ishmael and Hagar, by right, and you got to get this, they had a right according to the customs and laws of the day. Ishmael is the firstborn son of Abraham, and Abraham is a wealthy dude. Very wealthy. He is the Donald Trump of the Middle East. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's really kind of out there that he's really wealthy. So there's something going on here that Hagar and Ishmael, they're looking at Isaac with contempt. And who's the son of the promise? Isaac is. And so there's conflict going on. And Sarah gets pretty bold. Cast the slave woman with her son out. For the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Abraham loved his son, Ishmael. He was not an absentee father. He truly loved his son and was involved in his life. And this grieved him to the core. But God gets involved and God said, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac, Itzhak, shall your offspring be named. I will make a great nation of the son of the slave woman. So God gives him a promise because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar. Rather than inheriting the estate, they get sent out with bread and water. It's a great consolation prize. If this were happening today, what would Hagar and Ishmael do? They'd sue. There'd be a lawsuit from this. Yeah. Ishmael's a teenager at this point. So he's not fully grown. He's probably 12, 13, somewhere like that. Keep that in mind. So Abraham rose early morning, took bread and wine and water, gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. So things don't go well. You know, they're dehydrated, and, you know, the, the, the boy is near death at this point. But remember, God gave a promise to Abraham. He gave a promise to Abraham, said that he will make a nation out of Ishmael, so they're not going to perish. But I don't know if they know this at this point. If things have gotten so desperate at this point, Hagar quits her child under a bush, kind of basically keeps him under the shade, and she wanders off. I'm not about to watch my own son die. Kind of what's going on here. Now, I want to point something else out, how difficult this had to be for Abraham. It doesn't really talk about it, but you get the idea from the fact that this displeased him, and, he had to, and God had to intervene and speak. And here's the idea, if you want to take away from this, is that Christ himself says that anybody who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of the kingdom of God. And so in a very real way, the choice for Abraham was, do I listen to, trust, and obey God? Or do I go with my feelings and my love for my own family? And he chose 
God over family. Harsh reality, but it's true. That's basically why he had relieved, not because Sarah asked him to, because of his love for his God first. Yeah, that's correct. Because God said, listen to your wife, your wife's right. Because my word says, remember the word that, Abraham, that God gave to Abraham, it's through Isaac, so your offspring shall be named. So Sarah, when she said the thing she said, she said it with the authority of the word of God behind her. She was trusting God's word, which is why in Scripture, in, in the New Testament, Sarah is held up as one who truly had faith. This is proof that she had faith because she was believing the promises of God regarding her son. And when Hagar and Ishmael were acting out in pride and in contempt, remember, God humbles those who exalt themselves, right? They exalted themselves against Sarah and Isaac. God humbles them. And it was Sarai who was standing on the promises of God in this, in this case, which is why God intervenes and says, your, your wife is right, which is proof that women are always right. So, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I, that's a joke. <laughs> Maybe it's not. <laughs> yeah. In, in modern day, the, the verbiage is, you know, obviously... They threw Hagar and the son under the bus. However, the reason why Sarah did that is because her trust and faith in God, that this was the will of God, and and, and, and she needed to follow that, like fill out the prophecy or whatever yep. it was. Now, as far as Hagar, it, it, it sounded like in a, in a previous couple of lines up that she was losing faith in God when thinking her son was going to die. Uh, he obviously didn't. I find it difficult to believe that Abraham would not have told them prior to their leaving that God has told me that he will make a great nation of Ishmael for my sake. I find it difficult to believe that Abraham, the way Abraham was, that he would not have said that. But you'll understand this, is that God now is humbling, humbling Hagar and humbling Ishmael. And they have a promise, but oftentimes what God does with these promises, when, when he has to humble an impenitent sinner so that they will repent, he'll often strip them of practically everything. We, you know, we've seen this. We talk about the person, well, they're at their lowest. Once they're at their lowest, then God can finally do something. We talk about people this way. This person is off doing this crazy thing, and we know that until they hit rock bottom, they're going to continue down that path, right? And so they have a promise from God, and yet they haven't hit rock bottom yet. And it's in hitting rock bottom that now God intervenes on their behalf in a very gracious, kind, merciful way. So they have, they have a gospel promise to hang on to, but God's not done at the moment with them, kind of in the in the humbling process. And I, I see this history being repeated year after year, generation after generation uh, of people repeating itself over and over again, just like you made uh, 
instance to people who now have have uh, that are that are that are not making it good that they have to hit bottom. Yeah. Remember, God humbles those who exalt themselves, and he exalts those who humble themselves. And if you won't humble yourself, God will help you in that. This is law and gospel at work, by the way. This is law and gospel. The law strips us of any notion that somehow we have a right standing before God because we're so good. And when the law does its killing work and it's done with us, we basically come to God and say, we are poor, naked, bleeding, dead, wretched, please save. The person who still is holding up to God their good works and saying, God, you owe me something because, look, I did this for you, they still haven't had the law have its full effect on them yet. If you kind of think that we're seeing law and gospel being played out, the law now is doing its killing work, but only when you've got nothing, absolutely nothing, then does God's grace truly step in, and God's grace is seen as that, as grace, as mercy, as forgiveness. So when the water skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. She went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy. Hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Now the promise comes to her directly from God. So then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with the water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Question? Isn't this where the tension between Israel and all the, uh, like... Other people start. In what way? Like Ishmael and uh, Hagar, aren't they talked about as non-believers later on? They're not talked about as believers. Yeah, um, yeah they they will eventually become. You know, they will eventually drift into paganism. Yeah, but this this isn't really the root of all of the things. And even the tensions that are in the Middle East today. Well, many Muslims claim a genetic heritage coming through Ishmael, but the reality is is that. Um, you know, very few could prove some kind of a direct genetic lineage going to Ishmael. And so that's kind of a mythology that's built up. Doesn't it in the New Testament they make the distinction between Hagar and Sarah? Yeah, in Galatians. Yeah, the book of Galatians. And what Paul does in the book of Galatians, we actually covered this earlier when we uh, were kind of setting the foundation and properly understanding the story, is that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then takes Sarah and Hagar, and kind of uses a typological allegory. One is a woman who bears uh, sons of slavery, which are those who are under the law, Judaism, whereas the sons and daughters of Sarai are the ones who are free. So, you know, two different mountains, Sinai and Zion, (laughs) Hagar and Sarah, and that we are, by the gospel, children of Abraham, not the children of the slave woman. 
So it's an interesting thing that goes on there. Oh, and by the way, when Joseph, we'll get to this in due time, but you know the story of Joseph. This is Jacob's son, Joseph. When he is sold into slavery by his brothers, who is it that buys him and then sells him to slavery in Egypt? Who are the people who buy Joseph, carry him to Egypt, and then sell him into slavery in Egypt? Isn't it a caravan? A caravan of what? Of whom? Ishmaelites. Uh Uh-huh. It's fascinating. That's not an accident. That's not a coincidence. So the Ishmaelites eventually sell Israel into slavery. I'm just trying to understand some of the, you know, later on when Joshua has to go through and kill all these people to kill them all. Yeah. Yeah, but there's so many tribes at this point. So many tribes. And and the Ishmaelites are not listed in that list. Trying to figure out, you know, because here we see Abraham has family that are pagans. And he communicates with them. And he comes from a pagan family, Uh lineage. And, you know, and... You know, in Egypt, as a nation's established, apparently he has relations there and everything else. So maybe later on, it's hard for them to kill them all. Maybe that's what they're thinking about. Maybe they still have some family. Uh, no, actually, when you read the Mosaic Covenant, um, God specifically tells the children of Israel to not mess with the Ishmaelites because they are brothers. God specifically tells the, the, the children of Israel to not you know, do to the Amalekites and do that to the Ishmaelites because they are related through Abraham. So there's, there's a prohibition by God regarding that. All right, let's continue. So in verse 22, At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. So Abraham said, I swear. What do you think the reason for this is? Abraham's a very wealthy man. He's practically a nation all by himself. He's that wealthy. He's, you know, so he's a powerful sojourner. And Abimelech is the guy who Abraham and Sarai lied to and said, yeah, she's my sister. And Abimelech took Sarai to be his wife, but God intervened before anything happened. And so here we got Abimelech basically wanting to make a treaty with Abraham. And you'll notice, uh, swear to me that you won't deal falsely with me. So notice, (laughs) notice here that Abraham, the man of God, because of his lies, doesn't exactly have a good reputation. A little bit of a side note, not to justify this because I'm not justifying it. This is something that we Christians have to struggle with because each and every one of us as Christians, we are justified before God and we're sinner at the same time. And if we're telling the world that Christianity is all about how holy and moral we are, oh, we are setting ourselves up for a fall. There was a time when I was a small business owner and I owned a graphic design company. And so I would build websites for people and do marketing plans and put together marketing pieces and, you know, and brochures and advertisements for different companies. And I was part of a a local networking group of different business owners in Orange County. And whenever I would get a client who then would pay me with a check and there was an ichthus on it, an ichthus, the fish symbol, the Christian fish symbol, 
I learned the hard way, if there's an ichthus on that check, you take it to the bank and you cash it or it'll bounce. Dead serious. I wish I was not telling the truth. And seriously, you talk to the different business owners in, the, in my network. They hated doing business with the Christian shops because they thought that because they're Christian, that somehow that they can deal with a different set of morals that was really looser morals than the world had. No joke. I can't even begin to tell you how many checks bounced from so-called Christian companies. Not good. Not good at all. So here we have an example of, because of Abraham's lie, now we've got Abimelech coming and basically saying, swear to me that you're not going to deal falsely with me. Ugh. So we have Abraham the saint and Abraham the sinner. All of us are sinner and saint at the same time, this side of the resurrection. This is why Christianity is not about us being holier than other people. It's about us being forgiven sinners and us bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. Knowing that each and every one of us is capable of falling short daily regarding what God's standard is. And the solution is to confess and be forgiven and then the next day, bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. That's the idea. And keep in mind, the world's watching. They really are. But in those circles where Christianity is viewed or portrayed as, we're holier than you because we're the moral majority, oh, Christianity is not the moral majority. Christianity is the forgiven minority. And the word is forgiven. Big difference. The one projects this holier-than-thou thing. And the problem is this, is that when it becomes kind of a moral majority mindset, the message of Christianity is we expect you pagans, you non-believers, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, and we're going to condemn you because you're not. That's a problem. I don't expect unbelievers to act like Christians. I expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. So the solution is not, I'm going to beat you over the head and I'm going to do this and do that and we're going to you know, condemn you to hell because of how rotten you are. No. We're going to say this. God's law says you're a sinner and you need to repent and you need to be forgiven and Christ has bled and died for your sins. I'm not better than you because Scripture says Christ died for the ungodly. I'm one of them. So are you. Repent. Christ has bled and died for you. Believe and you will be forgiven. That's the message. And unfortunately, in, in the, really since World War II, American evangelicalism kind of went off on this legalistic bent where we're trying to change the culture through the law and through civic righteousness rather than through the gospel. And I think that's part of the reason why we're in such a mess today. Because you can't make Christians by preaching only the law. Christians are made by preaching the gospel. But you never get to uh, the goal if you shame people. Right. I mean, yeah. it's not love either. Right. Exactly. It isn't. And see, Christ is merciful and he's kind to sinners. And that cheesed off the religious people. Think about it. Yes. 
So the two distinctions would be an attitude of arrogance as opposed to an mm-hmm. attitude of humility. Right. And see, that's the thing is, is that legalism has in it an insipid arrogance that goes with it. It always does, no matter what form it takes. And it takes on a lot of different forms. Islam is a form of that arrogance. Think about it. Islam is one of the most arrogant religions in the whole world. Submit or die. Keep Sharia or else. And Christianity has its own version of it. I'm holier than you and you're going to hell because... And I'm not because I don't watch television, because I don't drink alcohol, because I don't smoke, I don't dance, I don't chew. I don't, I don't. Well, aren't you special? And you'll notice when you start talking that way, what are you doing? You're exalting yourself and your own righteousness. But the gospel teaches us that none of us is righteous, but that every Christian is a penitent, humbled believer in the mercy and forgiveness of Christ, and if it weren't for His grace, every one of us would end up in a devil's hell. And so the only reason why there's any progress in holiness is because we've gotten rid of this idea of that arrogant notion, I'm better than you are. Instead, real holiness begins with, I'm a sinner. Saved by grace. You cannot make any real progress in true holiness by going the legalistic route of self-righteousness, true holiness is only attained. And there's progress in it. Only humble, on your knees, forgiven. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The installment of today's Roseboro's Ramblings Through Genesis on Genesis chapter 21. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. 
But wait, Boo's Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that you're a sinner and that you're not actually morally better than other people, but that you are forgiven and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota. Zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's Roseboro's Ramblings through Genesis as we take a brief look at Genesis chapter 21. Yeah. So to play out the distinction even more, it's uh, the difference between you condemning someone and God's word condemning someone, you know? God's what? God's word. When we do say the word of God, it's condemning them to hell, but it's not us doing it. And we're including ourselves exactly. if we didn't have repentance and forgiveness of sins. Yeah, exactly. And this is why Paul kind of asked the question when he preaches the gospel in like Romans 3. So where then is boasting? It's excluded. The reason why boasting is excluded is real simple. Because there isn't a single Christian who isn't a sinner. Save completely by God's grace. If it's totally by grace, where is the room for boasting? What are you boasting about? Can we get off tangent a little? Sure. Um, I don't want to get big into this, but the Duggars. Okay. No, this is a good question. No, please. It seems like when I've seen the girls, the interview, um, the society or the press is condemning Josh like he's a rapist and all this. And, you know, they're sitting there, you know, repenting. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, and, and exactly. You know, but the media, they, well, here is this goody two-shoes Christian big family. Mm-hmm. And then they, then they sinned. Right. So exactly. Uh, it's, it's a reality TV show. This is perfect. This is a great question. Oh, let's kind of back it up a little bit and become prior to the expose. The Duggar program, this family was put forward as a moral example for us to follow. Okay, it was kind of dripping with a lot of moralism. I'll just be blunt. And so the world is looking at them going, what is wrong with these people? You know, the world's looking at them going, I've been having sex since I was 13. What's wrong with you people? This is how the world thinks. And they're seeing their lives as, in a sense, an offense. Because Scripture basically says the world doesn't understand why you don't participate with them in their debaucheries. Okay, that's the Roseboro paraphrase. The emphasis was on, in the program, their morality rather than the fact that they're forgiven sinners. Does that make sense? And, and see, here's the thing. You don't want to separate the two. As a forgiven sinner, I am set free from sin, 
and, my, and I strive to mortify my flesh and not give in to it because I know that sin is slavery. But I can't talk about any progress in holiness apart from the cross. Unfortunately, the Duggar program, for the most part, really it's the morality, but what's missing from it is any explanation of it in light of the cross. Now, that being said, I don't really know the Duggar's religion. I know if there's a pastor friend of mine who actually lives pretty close to them. They put off the squeaky clean moral image. They're kind of like the Brady Bunch with a lot more Brady's. You know what I'm saying? Their morals is, is big. And so now we've got this problem, and it's come to light. And here's the issue, is that this happened in the Duggar family, and they've known about it for years. And despite knowing about it, they still permitted their public image to be moral rather than forgiven. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it, it's real simple. So they would have disclosed this in the very beginning of their show and said, this happened. Right. See, and see, this happened years ago. And so because their image is squeaky clean, but here's the thing. The whole time this program's in production, are they squeaky clean? No, nobody is. We're forgiven. So the, what's happened then is, is that the media has kind of jumped on this. And understand this. Every single human being has the law of God written on their hearts. And this is the funny part. I always love it when a non-believer starts arguing from the law written on their heart. Because my question is, who told you that was wrong? You know, where'd you get the idea that's wrong from? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, duh, duh. You know, <laughs> different story altogether. Okay, so they've got the skeleton in their closet. The skeleton's there the whole time they're, they're producing the show. They put out the squeaky clean moral image. We're good, goody two-shoes moral Christians. We don't even hold hands. We don't kiss. We don't drink. We don't smoke. We don't chew. And, the, the, and so they become the darlings of kind of this moral majority kind of Christianity. And then it comes out, well, the whole time this had happened. And, of course, they didn't talk about it. And the way it's viewed is, is they swept it under the rug. And kept it in the closet. But to me, they didn't sweep it under the rug. They went and they asked for forgiveness. They did what the Bible tells us to do about the problem. Joshua and did. So then it's over and done with. Yes and no. Come back to what I'm saying. Is the Duggar program really about forgiven sinners or moral people? It's about moral people. Well, and I wonder too, did Duggars allow you know, uh, knowingly and not allow to go that way because that makes more of a show than... Yeah. Reality TV has a way of distorting reality. There's a difference between a person who says, I'm a forgiven sinner and I try to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance or me putting forward a facade of I'm a moral person. We all do that. Each and every one of us. Do you? Something terrible and then we are out for appearances how great we are. That's, that, that's part of being a human, is it not? Is it a sinful part of being a human? Or is that a good part of being a human? <laughs> is it a sin? It's sinful. Okay, here's the deal. The gospel teaches us to do this, to put the facade down. We're all on the same level. All of us. But when the facade is up, we're no longer on the same level. All of a sudden... We're comparing whose facade has the best paint on it. Does that make sense? 
Isn't that because that's how the world does it? I mean, mm -hmm. all these people that are pointing at the Duggar as real have their own skeletons in the closet. Exactly. But how many of them would air their skeletons, you know? None of them. Yeah. And this is where Christianity is so radical. Biblical Christianity is radical because you guys come to church, and you know what I hear you guys say every single Sunday? I, a poor, miserable sinner. You guys say this in public, in front of each other. But because you say that in public, in front of everybody, if, Janet, if I were to come up to you and say, listen, I am so much holier than you are, you'd think I would... Yeah, exactly. Right. You would. You would laugh in my face. But see, the thing is, is that in churches where they don't confess their sins and are forgiven, there are people literally walking around saying, I'm holier than you are. And if you want to be as holy as me, here's the three, five, ten steps that you can do so that you can pull it off the way I'm pulling it off. And they write books about it and people buy it. And rather than laughing in their face, people think, oh, I've, I've got to get onto their program. Yes. Okay, it's, to me, it's kind of the same thing here. Um, and I, I cannot tell you what it is or who it is or anything. I hear on the radio, to come and do business with this man because he's a, he's a good Christian business. First time I hear that, bang, I ain't going. Exactly. Because why do you have to proclaim you're a Christian? I was always taught, especially by my dad, words don't mean anything. Actions. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They'll know we're Christians by our ichthus on our bumper sticker. They'll know that we're Christians because there's no alcohol in our cabinets. No. They'll know we're Christians because we don't smoke. I know plenty of non-believers who don't smoke. They'll know we're Christians by our love. And love makes you spring into action. Right. So kind of me, this, this is coming back to me, to me like for the Duggars. Is it, like you say, moral, or is it that their actions did speak to many, many people? Was it their morals, or was it their actions that spoke the way they led their life? They became the poster family for a morality-based Christianity. That's the best way I can put it. That's my interpretation of you know, what I've seen of their program. Squeaky clean, moralistic. And the thing is, is this is that every, and I can't help but do this, every single time I see this thing being portrayed, I don't see Jesus anymore. I see the family or the people who are trying to be holy. That, those are the only people I see. Does that make sense? Because all of a sudden when we're focusing on this person's morals, then all of a sudden the only thing I'm seeing is that person rather than Christ. And see, the thing is, is that I need Jesus like every day. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't mean it when I pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't need to pray that prayer and that I don't need to preach the gospel to myself and believe that I'm forgiven. And all of the progress that I've made, it's even wrong to say it that way, all the progress that the Holy Spirit has made in sanctifying me, and that's a better way of putting it, has come at a great cost. A great cost because mortifying the flesh hurts. Not going after my, what my sinful nature wants is hard. It's not easy. And, you know, and I'm, you know, what, 47 now? And I'm thinking 23, 24 years, I'm dead. 
and I'm done with this fight. I'm sick and tired of fighting my own sinful flesh on a daily basis. Being a Christian is for the birds. It is like being at war with yourself every single day of your life. And I'm tired. I literally am tired. But you know what? There isn't a day that goes by that I don't fight that fight. And there isn't a day that goes by where the devil, the world, my own sinful flesh don't get their licking on me. The reason I come to church is to hear the gospel. And although I'm the one preaching it, I'm also the one listening to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, you said, uh, you know, we know we're Christian by our love. Now, the world views love not as Christians view love, because the Christian view or the real view of love is actions and things you're doing for other people. The world views it as emotion. As, uh, as an emotional attachment to another person. Yes. You know, that's the honest view in our society. Right. And, and this is in part caused by a confusion. I think even the world would recognize the love that we're talking about here, that Scripture's talking about. And the, the issue is, is that in the English language, there is one word for love. Right. In Greek, there's four. Right. If I were to say the word agape, you kind of have an idea of what agape is. If I were to say the word eros, we all know what that is. Okay, those are two different words for love that both get translated as love into English. Two totally different meanings altogether. But the world understands what we're talking about because here's the thing. You do something kind to somebody who's an unbeliever just simply because they're your neighbor. And they know that you've done something kind for them. It's just that simple. The reason why we love, remember Jesus' singular commandment, as I have loved you, love one another. Everything is informed by the cross. How has Christ loved us? Sacrificially, bleeding and dying for our sins. Forgiving us of our trespasses. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, not at our best, at our worst, Christ dies for our sins. So we, because of Christ's love that he's shown us when we're at our worst, we then take that love of Christ given to us And we give it to others. Not when they're at their best, but they're at their worst. When they're at their greatest point of need. And it's an action. Love you. Love you, bro. Don't want to get my hands dirty, but I love you. That's not love. Love gets your hands into the muck. Love can't help but do that. Otherwise, it's not love. All right, let's keep moving on. Verse 22 again. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you. Yes, he is. And all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. Abraham said, I swear. And when Abraham reproved Abimelech, about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and two men, and, made a, uh, and the two men and made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs... 
you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of the men swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, then Abimelech, and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. Love this, by the way. On the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. All right, in the few minutes that remain, I am tempted to not go into 22 because I want to kind of dig into this. 22 is one of the most important chapters of all of the Old Testament. I know I've taught on it before. In fact, I preached on it last year because uh, it came up in the, uh, in the lectionary. But typologically, this is one of the most important chapters because this chapter is, if you would, a typological dress rehearsal for Jesus' crucifixion. And it's right there in the Old Testament. And it's so clear and it's so amazing that you know, it kind of bears a whole Sunday school lesson to kind of flesh it out. Does that make sense? I'm going to stop there, and I'll basically leave it as, are there any questions, anything that you guys want to kind of ask me? And we can just kind of throw it up. It doesn't have to be on anything we've been talking about. You can just throw a wild card question out if you want. You mentioned the typology of Sarah and Hagar and upcoming Isaac. Is Ishmael a typologist? Yeah, yeah, he well, Galatians bears it out because it's Hagar, Ishmael, the slave woman and her son, and Sarai, the free woman and her son. So the two are paired, you know, typologically. And Paul fleshes this out in Galatians, I think Galatians 4. So that's where you can find it, you know, what Paul does with that. And he does that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is important, which shows us then again how Scripture is to be understood. Yes. Isn't it interesting that um, the slave woman, um, Hagar, and her, you know, son, they go off and they get separated. And then we are part of the free woman, which is Sarah. But what ends up happening as Christians is we don't act like free people. We end up acting like servants to everyone else. Oh, you now, yes. Slaves start acting as if they are free instead of the slaves that they really are. So isn't that an interesting paradox? Yes. Now, here's the thing. We as Lutherans, and I think this is a good way of putting this, is that we embrace in Scripture this idea of paradox. There's certain things that exist kind of paradoxically, and you've kind of hit on one of the important paradoxes that we understand, is that I, as, as a Christian, I'm completely free in Christ, and I'm a slave to none, and in Christ, I'm a slave to all. Does that make sense? All right? The slavery switches, and this is the fun part, true freedom is slavery to God. False freedom is slavery to the devil. Okay? So each and every one of us were born slaves to sin. No doubt about it. All right? Dead in trespasses and sins, by nature objects of God's wrath. And that's true slavery. Christ sets us free. And we're, no longer, we're not free to sin because that's slavery. But now we, are, in this life, are servants of Christ. And doulos, it's actual slaves, slaves of Christ. And we are to consider ourselves servants to each other. And so the paradox is this, is that 
Paul then in Philippians 2, let me show you this from the text. And uh, uh, this is one of the earliest uh, hymns in Christianity. But in the Christology, and this thing is amazing, but it's Philippians chapter 2. I'll start at verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and, and any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Only a Christian can really do this. You want to talk about the no room for arrogance, no room for boasting? Because of Christ, we're to consider everybody else more significant than yourself. And that's me included. So I come to church and I consider all of you more significant than me and I'm here to serve you. I am your servant. And likewise, you look at everybody else here and you consider every one of them more significant than yourself and you are their servant. This is what true freedom looks like, by the way. And why do we do this? So let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This answers Cain's question. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form, or you can say he was God by nature, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the reason why we consider others as more significant than ourselves is because that's exactly what Christ did. He was God by nature and he became nothing. Born in a barn, not in a palace. He became nothing, and he became the servant of all humanity. And so because we are in him, he has called us to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him even to our deaths. So we are here, each and every one of us, to serve, not look after our own interests, not consider ourselves better than anybody, but consider everybody else as more significant than ourselves. What a radical way to live. Okay, so there, that was Stephen's question. You have a question. Were there dinosaurs on yeah. the ark? Or there dinosaurs? Absolutely. Absolutely, there are dinosaurs on the ark. On the ark. Oh, they didn't match. <laughs> no, they don't. They did. Let me ask you. Have you heard of dragon legends? You, you, you've heard of dragons, right? Yeah. Okay. What parts of the world do we get stories about dragons from? Everywhere. Asia. How about Europe? Africa? Of course. Native Americans have dragon stories? Um, I wonder about that. I wonder if there is. Yeah, they might. I don't think they're dragons, but I know in nature. Yeah, oh, the Chinese? There's all kinds of stories of dragons throughout the history of man. What do you think a dragon is? It's a dinosaur. All right? There's a, Cam- there's a Cambodian temple. This is a fascinating thing. There's a temple in Cambodia built 900 years ago. And they, they, it's got these wonderful reliefs of you know, like different animals and creatures and stuff like that. And one of the things on the relief 900 years ago is a stegosaurus. 
It's right there on the Cambodian temple. Yeah, they were on the ark. The reason why they didn't survive to this day is actually quite simple. The same reason why the dodo is not here. Man hunted them into extinction. Because all of the legends coming out of Asia and Europe and other parts of the world where there's dragon legends, it was a big deal to kill a dragon. They were considered a menace and a threat, and people were brave and went and fought the dragons and killed them. So it wasn't because they didn't have food mm. on the earth. Okay. Isn't that That's what, what he said. That's what I thought. And in the large plants, do you think the, eco, the, uh, the earth couldn't... Could it, provide for those afterwards? Well, here's the deal. What do we know about the earth with Noah coming off the ark? The water came up from the ground. Oh, hold, hold, hold up. The earth. Remember, Noah sends out a dove, and the dove comes back empty, sends it out again, sends it out a third time, and it brings back what? Right. So as the earth, as the water subsided, vegetation started coming up. Okay, so there's vegetation again on the earth. I mean, right, even before they got off the ark, vegetation was already there. And plus, all of the animals on the ark are going to need to survive in some way in order for that little ecosystem to work. They're going to have to have you know, vegetables and things like that. So it's not, a, it's not a lack of plants that is going to cause you know, that kind of thing. It's really going to be you know, the same thing that's causing so many species to go out of existence today, humankind hunting them to extinction. Yeah, it says that the Native Americans did have dragon lions. Okay. Yeah, sounds a lot like a dragon I've heard of, or dinosaurs I know of. Yeah, but they would have been pretty hard to manage on the ark, wouldn't they? I have no idea what their temperament was. <laughs> All right. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. It's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.